Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. My guest today is literary agent Betsy Amster, principal agent of the Betsy Amster Literary Agency, which opened in 1992. Located in Los Angeles, the agency handles publishing rights and all ancillary rights. They work with both first-time and established writers and represent literary fiction, upscale commercial women's fiction, voice-driven mysteries and thrillers, narrative nonfiction, especially by journalists, travelogues, memoirs, social issues and trends, psychology, self-help, on and on. We're going to talk about what they what they do represent, what they don't represent. Before opening the agency, Betsy spent 10 years as an editor at Pantheon and Vintage and two years as editorial director of the Globe Pequot Press. She's been described in the LA Times as a dogged prospector of literary talent and celebrated in a profile in the ASJA newsletter for her no-nonsense style and whimsical sense of humor. She frequently teaches classes on publishing at UCLA Extension's Writers Program and participates in panels at the LA Times Festival of Books. She's been on the show at least six times in the past with Barbara. You can find those interviews up in our archives. But a lot has been happening in both the publishing world and the world at large recently, so I thought this is a great time for us to catch ourselves up. Before I bring her on, a quick reminder about our bookshop page on bookshop.org. We started that page to be able to offer the books that our guests have written, as well as some of our own recommendations, craft writing books, some of the books that we have loved. They are all up there. It's a work in progress. So if you don't see what you like up there and you'd like us to carry it, let us know. Drop us a line. That is at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Always feel free to visit our Patreon page. We're, of course, offering special tips and perks to our patrons. If the show's boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice, check us out there, patreon.com slash writers on writing. And lastly, we always invite you to leave a review of our show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, however you consume your podcasts. That brings new listeners to the show and helps us out. On with the show. Betsy, welcome back. I am so glad to be here. Now, I know, you know, you've been on a bunch of times with Barbara, but we've never gotten a chance to do this. And so I thought maybe we could just start with what got you into agenting all those years ago and some of the things that that it takes to make a great agent, because it strikes me as it's a mixture of a lot of things, legal things, social sensibility things, all those things. So tell me uh, kind of your strengths and, and what attracted you to it and, and what has kept you in it for all these decades. I was definitely bitten by the publishing bug when I was at Random House. It was just a really fascinating industry to see the inside of. And when my husband was recruited by USC a long time ago, I knew that I wanted to stay attached to publishing and worked briefly at a publishing company in Century City. And it was very fun for me coming from New York to be able to you know, be in a skyscraper and ride in an elevator. But the publishing was quite circumscribed and I didn't really like it that much. And an agent I had dealt with in New York reached out to me and said, would you like to be the development arm, sort of my West Coast development arm, and we can sell the projects that you develop together. 
And so I did that for two years. It was immensely helpful. The agent's name is Angela Miller of the Miller Agency. And mm. she was just very helpful. I had fun. I I got to, you know, continue exercising my editorial muscle, looking for projects and being entrepreneurial. And then Angela, I learned a great deal from her about negotiating contracts, keeping up with editors and things like that. And you went straight from that into opening your own agency in LA, yeah? Exactly. I, I found myself feeling very interested in, in the entire arc of the enterprise. And so struck out on my own after two years and then have been doing it ever since. And it's a very addictive industry. I mean, it, if it is for you, it tends to be very hard to give it up and imagine doing something else, hmm. partly because it involves books, but you're also nurturing the careers of writers. And it's just, it's a very nuanced undertaking. I mean, there's a lot that goes on. It's very hard to get bored in it, partly because, you know, you read that long list of things that I represent. You can follow up on whatever your interests are. And then there's just like a very concrete side of it. You alluded to the legal side, you know, making sure that the agreement is really to the extent possible in the author's favor and understanding where little booby traps lie. There are just so many things that reward an attention to detail. So if you are built that way, it is the perfect career. I was thinking of all the ways in which it almost parallels, I mean, the, the legal part of it, because you really do have to be an advocate for your client and a cheerleader and an editor and high attention to detail, but you also have to be in touch with social trends and where public's interest is lying. And it's it's so many different buckets, it strikes me, that go into to making a successful agent. And I'm kind of curious, you've you've talked about some of the gratifying parts. I don't know what some of the the most challenging parts of it are. I imagine just keeping up with the amount of reading that you have to to stay on top of as you get flooded with submissions. Honestly, that's the least of it, I would say. I work with a reader who's really helpful and screens things for me. And I'm a pretty fast reader. So it's easy to get overwhelmed, a state that I called being pecked to death by ducks. I stole that from somebody, I don't remember who, but that's what it, you know, some days it will feel that way. You know, sometimes your author doesn't get along with her editor, or sometimes the publishing company will come up with a really bad cover and want you to like it. You know, so there are things like that. Or, or sometimes an author will not have quite put the, in the work necessary to get a manuscript up to the level it needs to be. You know, so there are a lot of things that need to be navigated and negotiated along the way. I want to talk a little, we, we're definitely going to get to all of these query letter questions. I opened this up to some of our regular listeners and some of our patrons, and they had a, they had a lot for you. So we're definitely going to get to all of that. But I kind of wanted to start with where <laughs> where we find ourselves recently in the world. And a lot has changed just in the last couple of years. I mean, I'm watching all of these consolidations among the big houses. And I'm watching AI sort of breathing down our necks in both overt and kind of nuanced ways that I know is freaking out a lot of writers. So I thought maybe we could start with kind of those big philosophical questions at the outset. And maybe we start first with maybe one of the easier ones, which is the consolidation of the publishing houses and how 
or if you feel like that's impacted your life or the life of your authors, kind of how worried should writers be about shifts in in the big houses? Well, in a sense, you can't worry about it because it's like tectonic shifts. Are you going to worry about those? What good is it going to do? There are so many imprints. I I have always experienced publishing as an industry of people and people's taste. And that remains. I I feel that, that as an agent, you often have to think in terms of beating the system or what's the workaround or how can we make this happen against the odds? So in a sense, I refuse to get discouraged by that. I think that there are a lot of smaller houses that are coming up in the world. My bottom line is I feel that there are a lot of possible options for writers. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. Maybe more than ever. I mean, it really feels like there are so many great small presses now. And I don't know if that was, you know, I haven't been in the industry long enough to know if that was true decades ago, or if that's a fairly new phenomenon. There really are a lot of really wonderful, small niche presses. Is that a new phenomenon? Well, I think it might be, in some ways, it might be a little easier now. You know, ebooks don't require printing. So there's less of an expense. Not, not that every small press is only publishing ebooks, but there, again, there are many more workarounds available to them. There's a couple who work out of their living room. You know, so that, that to me is the ultimate example of what can happen of beating the system in a sense. Are there little presses that you have been loving that you work with or do do you pretty much stick with the big guys? I prefer the larger houses because I feel our expectations are more aligned. Not that your expectations are always lived up to, but there's, I don't know, perhaps because, although I did work at a smaller house, I was going to say perhaps because I, I came out of the larger publishing. There are some smaller houses. I think Minnesota, for example, the Twin Cities have a lot of really interesting houses. There are some in San Francisco. One category that I really like is illustrated books. And, you know, Chronicle, for example, is a really good house. The thing I want to underscore to your listeners is there are plenty of opportunities from small to large. The larger houses will often have and have more marketing muscle which can work to your advantage. But the smaller houses, more in the mold of the little engine that could, can also surprise you. I don't know. I haven't had the optimism beaten out of me after my 100 years in publishing. Not that it's always fulfilled, but it just seems to me that it's such an amazing, you know, the the whole process of from idea to book, it still amazes me after all these years. Yeah. So if somebody is aiming, this was one of our questions, if somebody sort of feels like their book will fit better with a smaller house, either it's a quieter book or, you know, it just is in whatever that arena is, is it still, does it still behoove them to seek out an agent or do those smaller presses, you can directly query them as an author or do you, do you still need representation? The tricky thing about, about working with an agent is that we exist on commissions. So that is going to predispose us towards dealing with houses that pay real advances. And that can be difficult for a smaller house. So I worry sometimes when I hear that people think their work 
is best suited to a smaller house because it makes me wonder, rightly or wrongly, whether the work has been fully realized. Mm. Because I feel it is a better bet to aspire to be published by a larger house. I have dealt with a lot of smaller houses and have liked the experience and everything. But if somebody came to me saying, I think, I mean, and people have come to me saying, I think this would be best suited to a smaller house, I would probably think twice about taking it on. And I guess a follow on to that question, some people had asked if they have already gone the self-publishing route in prior books, is that sort of a um, scarlet letter on them? Or would you still take them on based on the strength of the current book? I don't think it's a scarlet letter. Where it becomes problematic is when somebody wants, well, sees an agent as the answer to all their problems. And, you know, the possibility of placing a book that has already been self-published that has sold 54 copies and thus is not super compelling to a larger house, you know, thinking an agent can make that happen, which we would not be able to do. Well, let's turn to the tricky subject of AI. One of the constant conversations, at least that I'm following online and social media amongst writers right now. And I think there can be ways that maybe it could be to our advantage in, in some ways, maybe down the road. But I guess I should start just generally asking if you've given this a lot of thought and your general opinions about this and if it's having any sort of impact on your approach to writing life, publishing life. I haven't seen any impact yet. There's concern among agents that AI not be used for covers you know, I think if, if AI were used for covers and they were lovely covers, our concern would probably melt away. Um, not be used for translations. That seems like a, a very fair concern. You know, things like that, where the ineffable spark of the, of the human involvement would be missing and, and is crucial. Beyond that, it's really unclear to me where it might be going. Um, I think some publishers are using it to kickstart copywriting, that seems perfectly fair. It's not that they're delegating the whole thing to chat GPT or anything. I don't think we know. I, you know, I think there's great concern about the tech companies using people's work without their permission or knowledge even in order to create their databases. Right. Um, and, and that seems to me totally legit. And I don't know what's going to become of that. Is that something that's getting written into contracts now? I don't know about that. It is something that you can raise in terms of things like translations or covers or whatever. And then the publisher decides where they whether they want to pay attention to it or not, to, to your request. But the, so the publisher is not now requesting, can we use AI to learn from your authors? Not that I'm seeing, no. Because there's some database that I just saw that you can plug your name in if you're a published author yes. and see if you're yeah yes. if you're being used. Yikes! So yeah, it's very interesting. I was wondering if people were using it in their query letters because <laughs> we'll get into query letters in a minute. But I could just see people being flummoxed by their query letter and <laughs> Chat GPT write it for them. It, it wouldn't bother me unless there was a giant gap between the query letter and the actual work. Yeah, the permutations of this, I think we're just beginning to, exactly. to think about. And as I was saying to you offline, you know, I mean, there was a, a major disruption with ebooks, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And 
Yeah, I think we worked our way through that, but it's hard to anticipate all the issues and they seem to be changing under our feet. So Well, and it. seem to be way bigger than publishing. Right. Oh, well, yes, the right. series, it seems sort of outside our purview. Yes. Speaking of the times, I was also curious, just in coming off of the pandemic, coming, living through the times we are living through, do you feel like that has changed readers' taste? Do we have more of a, a taste for nonfiction to understand the world? Do we have more of a escapism inclination with everything that's going on? Or have you noticed any shifts in readers' interests given the state of the world? You know, I'm not sure how macro agents actually are. I think that we are very similar to the person in the bookstore who looks around them and goes, wow, you know, there are so many possibilities. Who knows what might come out of my slush pile? So we're very per project oriented. That doesn't mean we don't read Publishers Weekly and Pub Marketplace. Publishers Weekly had an article in July about the first two quarters, and they were talking about how sales of adult fiction were up and there were declines in the other major categories. So I think the escapism hypothesis is a legit one. So we should get into query letters a little bit because that's where the bulk of the questions from our listeners came. So query letters now are generally solicited, I think maybe entirely solicited online. They're emails opposed to writing you through the mail. Yes, and I are. does that make it easier on you or more difficult on you? Because I would imagine that then the number then would just exponentially increase of of queries that you get. Do you find yourself getting well, more now than ever before? I don't know. I have always kept a distance from my slush pile because that can get really overwhelming. And I've always worked with really wonderful readers who have been very helpful in screening what I should actually see. So I can't really compare the olden days to the current days. It is a lot easier. One thing I started doing, and I think a lot of agents do, is I have a bounce back message that says, if you don't hear from me, it means your work was not right for me. And the norm somehow amazingly used to be that you would respond to everybody, even if it was simply to say, you know, thanks, but not right for us. And that is a big burden, but we don't have that burden anymore. How long should people give themselves mentally to feel like you have looked at their work and rejected it? Um, probably about six weeks. The truth of the matter is that if something is good, an agent is going to snap it up very quickly. And other agents are aware of that. So we don't, we don't tend to, to sit on things. We tend to review or you know, ask a reader to review the slush pile very regularly. It is an imperfect process. And sometimes people will follow up directly with me, especially if we have some connection in common. And that can be helpful. You know, a few times I've gone back to my reader and said, does this ring a bell? Can you see if you can find it and send it to me? It is funny. I was just interviewing Angie Kim a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about sending out queries to 10 agents, hearing nothing, hearing nothing, and then getting one positive response back. And so she sent out to all of the agents she hadn't heard from, you know, 
urgent, I have an offer of representation. And within, I don't know, 12 hours, 10, maybe it was even lower, eight of the 10 got back to her saying, you know, send it. So I think there was, as she said, some fear of missing out. And, you know, once they knew that she was a hot ticket item and then got offers of representation from several of them as well. So if something's good, it's going to find its path. Also having that, being able to say that to agents is really helpful just as an agent, being able to say, I have interest to editors also can focus them, but you must legitimately have that interest. Yeah. She said, I don't know what would have happened if I would have just said that. And I'm like, no, I don't think we should try that at home. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So on the query letters, are there common, let's start with just sort of common mistakes that you see writers making that kind of take them out of the running beyond typos and things like that. But are there real don'ts that you see commonly done that immediately turn you off? Well, there's often a really big contrast between query letters that are treated as as a business communication, even though there is a little bit of song and dance in it, in terms of the, you know, the way you're going to describe your book should be alluring. And very unprofessional, wishful thinking kinds of things. But I think anybody who's listening to this show understands that basic fact that this is a business communication. So I I would say that I've always said for years that studying the flap copy of published books gives you a sense of how a publisher feels they can rope you in with copy. And to try to apply some of those same principles to the way you talk about your own book and also to help position the book for the agent, you know, by invoking other books and saying something useful and concise about your credentials. You know, yes. So it's actually it seems very simple in some ways to me. And agents understand that the query letter is not the work. And so we're looking for a kind of minimum level of professionalism and coherence. And then we want to go, if if you've said something in your query letter that intrigues us, we will go very quickly to, I always ask for first three pages of a novel, say, Uh, we will go very quickly to those sample pages because that is really going to be decisive. And how important is it for them? Obviously, they should have researched you, know what you represent, but how important is it for them to establish that connection with you of hey, we may have met at Festival of Books or I I have this, you like that. Okay. I like it because I like feeling that we are all part of a community. And do you open with that or do you just try and hit you over the head immediately with the pitch of the book? You could open with that or you could open with, I heard you on Writers on Writing. Yeah. No, it's definitely open with that. (laughs) That you're, you're embedded in the world of writing. You know, you're not just a random wannabe. I think probably the biggest mistake people make actually is not researching me or another agent. I think people are very impatient about, they don't always understand when their work is ready. And again, I'm not sure that applies to your listeners, but I, I encounter a lot of writers who don't understand when their work is ready, don't research me, don't approach me the way I want to be approached. In other words, maybe don't send those sample pages, which puts me in a position where I have to get in touch with them if I'm interested to ask for them, which I rarely do. But 
what it says to me when people don't include those pages is this person doesn't know how to research agents. That is a bad sign. Yeah. And so the query letter, in theory, I suppose if you're going to query 10 agents, each query letter should look like 10 different letters and not a forum query letter. And I, I see a lot of people just sending blast query letters out to, you know, I've got 50 agents I've got to hit and I'm going to hit them 10 at a time. And it's going to look pretty identical, you know, fill in the blank for the agent's name, but not much else. So yeah, I do want to impress upon people that you need to know who you are querying and why you are querying them. And yeah, try and establish that personal connection. To the point about the platform that you have made your way in the writing community, that you are an active participant, do they need to demonstrate to you some sort of writing platform or publishing involvement in the community? Is that important to you? Well, it can be a plus, but it's it's not something that's necessary. People worry a lot about platform. And ultimately, the quality of the writing is more important. Every agent is longing for something they get completely caught up in, just as every reader is longing for that, right? And we don't necessarily care about anything other than that. I mean, there, you can make use of some other things around the author's experience or whatever. If the author has that experience, say they have an MFA or say they have blurbs from people. But ultimately, honestly, I swear, the work is the thing that the writer is judged on, not other stuff. Is that as true of fiction? Or I should say, is that as true of nonfiction as fiction? No. With nonfiction, because it's not much of it is not voice driven in the same way. You know, fiction is all about that immersive experience. Nonfiction is not there. Certainly the author has to care about platform. Um, you, you have to be kind of in the right point in your career to be suggesting a book in nonfiction. Although again, with memoir or certain kinds of narrative nonfiction, the, the quality of the read is going to be one of the most important things. We'll be back with more from literary agent Betsy Amster in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show and have learned any tips that have inched you closer to publication, or you like these behind the scenes discussions with agents and the publishing process, this is your chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out. Visit patreon.com slash writers on writing and check us out at bookshop.org. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. You can see uh, all of the offerings at our bookshop, books that we both recommend, craft, writing books, as well as books from past guests. Let's get back to it with Betsy Amster talking about literary agenting and publishing. You brought up MFA, and I'm curious about that because there's been so much discussion in higher education. You know, if people are getting their money's worth for what they're putting out for higher degrees, and MFA strikes me as one of those tricky topics of, you know, it's very expensive and is the end product worth it? I assume that if you're planning on going into teaching writing, it certainly is. But do you see that as a worthwhile pursuit? 
And I, and I also ask because it seems like that's where a lot of writers are now finding their agents through MFA programs. And so just the access alone seems somewhat beneficial. But how do you see MFA programs? I think the access is really good. I think they're very expensive. I think some people are going to know how to take advantage of what they offer better than other people, potentially. And I think there are alternatives. For example, we are very lucky in Los Angeles to have the writer's program at UCLA Extension. I think getting feedback on your work, especially if you're writing something narrative, fiction, or nonfiction, is really useful and not a step to be skipped. Where you get it, I mean, my primary interest would be to know that you are not writing in a vacuum. And I wouldn't necessarily care if it was because you were in an MFA program or you were taking classes at, at extension or you had your own very rigorous writers group. I like this idea of meeting agents at UCLA Extension. I'm trying to think if UCI or other colleges in Southern California have, I mean, not to the degree that UCLA does. That's really a wonderful It's amazing. It's really such a big program. And I didn't realize that there were agency programs. Are there specific classes that you give or you just come in for one day lectures there? At this point, I'm usually guest speaking at somebody, a writer's class with other writers. Yeah, I know Santa Monica. I know Jim Crusoe at Santa Monica has a wonderful writer. I don't know if he's still doing it. That was years ago, but writer's workshop there. But yeah, I mean, I I do think that that is such a fantastic, that's how I met Barbara was at UCI. I think that's how most oh. of the people in our writing community met Barbara was through UCI. Yeah, I I think that those programs can be really, have a powerful effect. And a lot of my authors have come through UCLA Extension. I, th- I think I have more authors who came through UCLA Extension than I have MFAs. Wow. Very nice. I love that. We talked about literary fiction, memoir. Tell me a little bit about some of the other books, say in the last three to four years since the pandemic has happened, some of the things that have come across your desk uh, that have particularly delighted you and some of the things that you're representing now that have gotten you very excited. Well, I have an author named Maricel Vera who did a book called The Taste of Sugar for Live Right that got incredibly fantastic reviews. And she has a really supportive editor and she just turned in a new manuscript that they bought called The Girls from Humboldt Park. And what Maricel does is mine Puerto Rican history for very interesting, pivotal moments. And so The Taste of Sugar was about the moment when the U.S. took over Puerto Rico was initially seen perhaps as a savior turned out very quickly not to be. And also a time when there was a huge hurricane and when many Puerto Ricans went into a kind of indentured servitude in Hawaii picking sugarcane. So it's almost an unknown slice or very little known slice of history that she covered in that book incredibly beautifully. And the new book is set in Humboldt Park, a Puerto Rican neighborhood in Chicago in the 70s and is a coming of age story and follows four girls, many of whom were preyed upon by their high school teachers and what it took for them to get to escape velocity, to get out from under the 
incredible chauvinism that they encountered, the tyranny of low expectations of girls to make something of themselves. And I absolutely adore her writing. And I love the fact that she has such a supportive editor who thinks so highly of her. And that is so meaningful for a writer to have that kind of support. I have another longtime client named Marion Henley, who is doing a book with Andrews McMeal. She is a graphic novelist. Well, not a novelist. She's really a graphic memoirist. And she's doing a book called Finding the Light, which is a book about rape. She was raped, stranger rape, and it took her many, many years to be able to write about it. And she writes about it in the context of adopting a son and trying to figure out when to tell him about what happened to her. And um, it took Marion a long time to finish the book. A lot of publishers turned it down. I asked her if there was some way she could claim the subject publicly. She ended up doing this amazing, when the Dobbs decision came down, she did an amazing graphic op-ed for the Washington Post about how important Roe v. Wade had been to her when she was raped because she knew she would not have to carry a rapist's child. And a young male editor at Andrews McMeal, which publishes a lot of illustrated books, and in, in many ways it's a departure for them because it's so serious, but a young male editor whose wife had canvassed on pro-abortion issues in Kansas, because that's where they're located, took it on. And that also, it's been kind of this amazing, what, what she writes about in the book is, well, learning to love men. And I love that she has a male editor and I love this editor. I've worked with him before, he's great. So again, having that support and the house is doing, this is the ultimate in book publishing. It's a paperback, but it has French flaps you know, and that's a real expense, but, you know, it's kind of a vote of confidence in the book as an object, which I think is really great. So that's very exciting. Yeah. How did you meet those two initially? They sound like they've been long-term clients, but how did you initially come across? Maricel sent me something. This is her third book. She sent me something years ago when I was still processing, a reader would come over and sit at my dining room table and I remember the opening scene of her first novel was so riveting because it was about a mentally ill mother on the roof of a shack, basically, in Puerto Rico. And we worked a long time. It was her first novel. You know, she didn't have any particular writing training. And we worked a long time finding the shape of it. And I don't remember how I met Marion. I feel like I've worked with her forever. I did another book of hers called The Shiniest Jewel, which was about the process of adopting her son after her father died that sold in an auction because it really tugged on a lot of heartstrings for editors. Some of these things are lost in the mists of time. So you talked about helping Marianne find the shape of the book. Tell me a little bit about how much of that you do with your clients and if that's an unusual amount of editing time that you would spend with them or how how involved you stay through the editing process and what that editing relationship looks like typically. 
Well, since I was an editor for all those years, I, you know, once you're an editor, you're forever an editor. So there are, are many editors who have become agents and we are all editorial sorts and we will work with our authors. We want to get the material in the best possible shape. Sometimes people hearing me say that will misinterpret it to think that I am the cleanup artist, which is really not what I'm talking about so much as holding a writer to the highest standards that they establish in their own work. And it takes, you know, what I value in a writer is the patience and stamina to go through sometimes the many drafts it takes in order to get something in the best possible shape to show editors. And then at that point, I withdraw. I mean, okay. meaning I place it if I can. And then I withdraw because it's not my editorial vision. It's my editorial vision that gets it to this point. But then I pull back because it's very important that the editor take it from that point. And beyond the strength of the work, what do what do you look for in a client and what should they be looking for in you? I mean, of course, they want you to love love the book because you're going to have to be a, a great cheerleader for it. But what sorts of what sorts of questions do you have for them beyond, you know, the work is strong? And what sorts of questions do you think they should be asking of you? Well, I'm looking for a voice. A voice suggests a kind of confidence, a confident writer, a writer capable of having a voice. There's a certain confidence in that. And that's really important. The ability to understand that you are taking the reader by the hand and offering them an experience as opposed to simply sort of disgorging what's in your head. That's really important. With nonfiction, I'm looking for somebody with an unusual idea who is in a position to support it somehow. That's where we circle back to platform. I'm really looking for somebody who shares the desire to make the work as strong as it can be. I have sometimes been in a position where I feel like I care hardly anymore do I find myself in that position because I recognize the signs, but it is a bad sign if I care more about making it perfect, I'm saying that with air quotes, than the writer does. What they should want from me is a lot of information as the process unfolds. And that includes what is my strategy? Agents will tend, some agents will submit to eight to 12 publishers. It doesn't sell, they move on. I am not like that. And most of the agents I know are not like that. We, you know, a work will get under our skin. We want to find a home for it. So we will work with an A list, a B list, a C list, maybe even a D list of publishers trying to find the right placement for an author. I want the authors to know which editors I've gone to. Occasionally, I have had people come to me whose work I've even sold who have not been told by a prior agent where the work went. Oof. Um, oh. Yes, that is a really bad thing. Or they were not told which editors at the houses saw it, as if the agent were afraid that the writer was going to approach the editor somehow. I mean, that's my only explanation for it. But oh. that to me is highly problematic. I think you need to know, I, I'm kind of assuming that my authors are making publishing a hobby 
you know, just really trying to inform themselves in every way they can so that the names are, are not lost on them of where something is going, either house or editor. I just feel that that's really important information. And I, I have had a few authors over the years who did not want to see rejection letters, which honestly I don't approve of, even though I know it's not necessarily the easiest thing. But there's a lot to be learned from them. Yeah. Even in case in cases where there's nothing to be learned and where you go, that is a completely pro forma rejection. <laughs> and that that editor just, you know, kind of went to the bottom of my list because they didn't take the time to write me what they really thought. But, you you know, a certain kind of consensus can emerge about problems that editors are having with material that could be addressed. So that's why I think it's important to see it. Right. Is there something that you can say to writers to let them know when something is ready to be submitted to an agent and when it is not? I mean, I know there's the whole, you know, you obviously have to polish something until you can polish it no more. But I do see a lot of people that are either rushing the process or they, you know, think they're ready for an agent way before they really are. And then I see people on the other side who have, you know, been noodling something for 10 years. And I'm like, just let it go. It's either going to work or it isn't. Is there anything you can say to people about kind of when they can sense the right time is the right time to, to approach agents? That's one of those strange, ineffable things. I know. I know. Um, It has to read like a real book. It doesn't mean that it, it won't have flaws, but it really has to read like a real book. It has to be the length of a real book. You know, sometimes people will send me things that are 283,000 words long right? or something. You know, even 150,000 is problematic. I, I work with a lot of writers who have taken years and years to feel that their work is ready. Not working in a vacuum and working with people whose opinion you really trust, I think could help. Or a situation of one of my favorite instructors at UCLA Extension is Mark Sarvis, who is a novelist himself. And he is clearly super rigorous with the writers he works with. I review masterclass manuscripts for UCLA and Mark's are invariably in amazing shape. So somehow he is communicating to them in a highly useful way how high the bar is. And also, I would feel confident that in that setting, they would understand when it was right to release their work into the world. And would they say to you in a query something about Mark, having worked with Mark? Is that an appropriate thing for them to have totally communicated? Okay. Yes. I love his work. He's been on the show a few times and it's wonderful. Yeah, there is a robust amount of talent in that program. I need to revisit all of the the professors that are there. It's yeah, it's wonderful. Well, beyond all of this, are there things that keep you up at night as an agent thinking about the industry or things that give you particular hope? I we've talked a lot about some really hopeful things today, but um yeah. How do you see things going in the next five or 10 years in this business, either good or bad? You know, the fact that publishing came through the pandemic with flying colors was the most wonderful thing. 
a, a local writer named John Borston once said to me that he thought publishing was a buggy whip business, which is to say very antiquated, which in many ways it still is. And the fact that, you know, a business where things don't necessarily happen quickly, where ripeness is all, could really find its footing in the pandemic, I thought was amazing and fantastic. That made me feel, you know, there, there has been hand-wringing over the years about, are the younger people reading, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I don't know, somehow I feel books are going to survive. Or, you know, the advent of eBooks also made people very nervous, that, you know, will bookstores go out of business? And there's been a kind of reversion to the, the mean of the printed book in many ways. So I'm pretty hopeful. It's partly that I've been in it for so long and seen it more or less flourish. I think this is currently actually kind of a tough time. And there, there are a fair number of layoffs and buyouts and a whole generation of people that I know at Random House, for example, are taking buyouts. And that is a really strange prospect to me to lose yeah. all those people all at once. Yeah. Um, but that might be just a life cycle thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's been great about the last couple of years, I feel like I see people reading more and more. And now I'm, I'm, on, I'm doing this from the East coast. So I've been on subways and everybody has a book and it's so, I, know. I don't know. You don't see that in LA, I guess, but <laughs> you're not on a subway in LA. But I do feel like the pandemic either renewed or um, heightened our love of reading in certain ways. And and another cool phenomenon that's popped up over the East Coast, I don't know if you've heard of these, but they're called silent book clubs. They're mm -hmm. all over over here. So the the concept is that you get together with your book club, but you're all reading different books. And the first hour of book club is just all of you sitting quietly in a restaurant, reading your own book. And then the second hour is eating and drinking together and talking about what you've been reading. And so you each share all the books that you're reading, but you don't have these, you know, assignments looming over you and reading books you may ne not necessarily like to read. But this is a phenomenon that amongst the young people that are, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And um, like, man, all of this gives me a lot of hope for <laughs> for the future of reading and the future of books and all that. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So I do see a lot of that. And then you're right. I mean, the, the mass exodus of people taking these buyouts was a little bit disconcerting, but I do always feel like these things are just going to kind of shake out and it's going to look different and, you know, change is scary, but it's, it's going to shake out into something fine. I think, I think we're going to be fine. Hopefully. I agree with that. Yeah. I have no reason not to, let's put it that way. That's yes. Yes. <laughs> what else are we going to do? Right. Uh, are there things we should have talked about? I kind of steered away from a lot of the nitty gritty things because there's, I, and I want to reiterate, there's a wealth of your conversations in the archives that people can hear your thoughts in the archives so they can dip back in there. But uh, are there things we should have mentioned in the last couple of years that, that are new that, that we haven't talked about today? I don't think so. That's one thing I like about publishing is that, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There yes. is that aspect to it, which I value. Uh, the, the main message I would want to get across to listeners is don't do this in a vacuum. 
the, the more you can be part of a community, the better off you will be for many different reasons. Well, and I know a lot of our listeners have been big fans of yours. I hear I hear your name quite a lot amongst people as the uh, the agent they love. So you're, oh, that's so nice. You're a kind, gentle soul. We really appreciate you. And you've been a great friend of the show over the years. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, we're going to link to your website in the um, in the show notes so people will know how to find you and get in touch if they if they wish to do that. And uh, I just so appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this. Well, likewise, it was great chatting with you. That was Betsy Amster of the Betsy Amster Literary Agency. You can learn more about Betsy in the show notes and a link to her website will be there. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasts. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. His music is up on Spotify at Just My Type. That's all the time we've got for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.